Hi, everyone, and welcome to Living a Legacy. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Eric Couch. Eric, what's going on? How are you? Hey, Neil, doing great. Man, 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 man. Bring in your daughters, grab your popcorn, because today's podcast is epic. Uh, in the Daughters of Kabani. Now, this is a new book by former political reporter and ABC News and New York Times best-selling author, Gail Samok Lehman introduces readers to an all-female militia. Let me say that again, an all-female militia who took on not, not just a group, but took on ISIS in Syria and won. Strap in, because this is going to be awesome. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Man, I'm excited. Uh, this, so, this, this so, speaks completely, Eric, to living a legacy. Yeah. Doesn't it? yeah, this is awesome. Man, I'm, I'm just like, we've got like an all-female militia just kicking butt in Syria. Um, you know, tell us, tell us kind of a little bit of the backstory and how did you get involved with this? And um, I mean, it's, in, yeah. you all know about stories, right? And about uh, the power of telling stories that connect us. And what happened was a soldier who had been in my second book, which was called Ashley's War, about an all-women mm -hmm. special operations team. Uh, she called me from Syria and said, you have to come see this. You have to come see what is happening on the ground in Syria. There are these women who are battling ISIS and they're leading, they're leading women, they're leading men, and they have huge support from the US military and from the special operations community. And you've got to come tell their story. <laughs> so that was really the opening, uh, really. And the, the thing that's so fascinating for me is how in the world did it come to be that ISIS, this force that bought and sold women, came to face off every single day against women who had women's equality, women's emancipation right at the center of their ideology. And these women fought ISIS room by room, house by house, town by town for a half decade. A half decade. Wow. Yeah. Now, now these are women who themselves had been oppressed, right? I mean, you know, look, this is interesting because of, you know, my own cultural heritage is, is from a place that there's a, a moment in the book where uh, my father and I are having a discussion about equality. And, I, and, you know, and when somebody told me that actually it was in this slice of northern Syria that it was women who were playing a key role in taking on ISIS and who were not just fighting ISIS, they were really fighting for equality also right alongside the military piece. I said, you, you know, I was absolutely dumbfounded. Right. And the whole yeah. book is an attempt to take readers on that journey with me to understand how in the world did the world's most far-reaching experiment in women's equality happen right on the ashes of the ISIS fight brought to you by women who've been fighting these men for, uh, for five years as America's partner on the ground. When you heard the story, Gail, you said, oh my gosh, as a storyteller and a writer, you're like, I got to cover this. I have to go into this. And when you probably first heard it, you said, really, is this seriously true? Right. I'm sure you're thinking that. I did. I mean, I think like everybody else, you think, how in the world did this come to be? And I think every great story starts with a question you can't answer. And the thing that happened when I went finally a year later, I was in Raqqa in the former so-called capital of the Islamic State. And it was a woman commander who took us to the front line. And she's acting, and there's a scene in, in, in The Daughters of Kobani where your readers will really come into this. She's acting like she's in, you know, Central Park or, or you know, Dollywood. She's like, oh, you know, look at this and look what they're doing and look what they're doing. And there's a smoking car bomb. They just went off and she's, yeah. you know, we're in kit and, you know, we have our helmets and our vests and, and she has, the only thing she has on is a, a scarf for the heat around her head and her, you know, and her AK slung. And she's like, you know, they keep targeting us. Look at what they're doing to us. This is ridiculous. And yet this is her commute to work Yeah, every day. This is what she's living. And they really fought extremism. They fought ISIS on behalf of the world. Now, are these are these women Syrians themselves? Are they from all over the world, or how did yeah. this come to? So be? they're Syrian Kurdish women. Um, they're also women from the Christian community who had mm -hmm. watched ISIS um, kidnap Christians in the Khabar Valley, and who then wow. were motivated to go defend their own communities. And one young woman, and you'll see in the Daughters of Kobani, there's one young woman from the Christian community, and I, I said, asked her maybe the dumbest question uh, anybody has ever asked in an interview, and I said, you know, what what did you think of? 
when you saw uh, ISIS fighters? Because I think for us in the US, they're an abstraction. They're not like the guy trying to, you know, and the, the guy in the next room. And right. she looked at me and she said, what did I think? I thought I wanted to kill him. She said, you know, they came to kill me or yeah. I go, or I kill them. And she said, and I'm here to protect my people, my community, defend my land. And you see that, that for them, it was about the purpose of not just their region, but ridding that whole mindset that women could be property, that women could be bought and sold for the world. Well, and you know, as, as we've talked about just last week on podcast um, about human trafficking, there's, there's more people enslaved today than any time in history. 42 million people enslaved throughout the world, right? And, and the Islamic State, as these, as these women are fighting, you know, as you said, you know, they're fighting against men who, who trafficked and who enslaved and who killed women, who killed Christians. And it's like they've, they've got, you know, you've got to, if you're going to enter a war, a battle, you've got to have a cause and a mission. And boy, wow. And you talk about legacy. I mean, when you talk to them about this and really the, this whole story, the whole Daughters of Kobani book and bringing this to life was about sharing for readers why this mattered to them and why this yeah. matters to the world. These are our allies in the fight against extremism, in the fight against ISIS, and the shared values of wanting girls to be educated, uh, wanting women to have uh, real agency over their own lives. And, you know, it's funny because one of the women I said to her, one of the commanders who was the, the America's partner, the Americans would uh, interface with her multiple times a day in terms of yeah. planning the war against ISIS in Raqqa. And she said to me, I said, why did you want to start a women's all women's unit, right? You already had equality and you were leading men in battle. And she said, we just didn't want men taking credit for our work. Yeah. Which there's not a woman alive. I don't care where you are in the world who does not understand that sentiment. Right. And they, they really wanted these men to know that uh, women were not going to take it. And in fact, that they would stop the men who bought and sold women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have a mission. Absolutely. And a purpose. And a purpose. 100%. So where does, okay. So we're talking about, is it, is it Yazidi Kurds? How do you, what's the, so, I don't say it so the, the Yazidi community um, was a community that both was uh, truly victimized by ISIS. And I mean, in, in really crimes against humanity, when you talk about, right. they went into their community, Genocide. they killed the men, that's right. They killed men and they took women and then they divided oh, them up and they trafficked them, right? And, and yeah. these Syrian Kurds who fought them, later young women from that community formed units to fight ISIS. And they, and in fact, I saw them in Raqqa, you know, and you see 20 young women and the book really talks about that. There are 20 young women huddled over a tablet and you think, what are they doing? And then you realize they're uh, helping the Americans to find targets for airstrikes based on what they've seen on the ground. Yeah, how they train themselves. They get trained. They were part of the train and equip. And I hope, you know, you'll, you'll meet in the book a lot of the men from U.S. Special Operations uh, who in very small numbers helped them work with technology that interfaced with US systems because America provided the air power. And these folks were the fighting force. 10,000 of them were lost uh, to the ISIS fight on the ground. Wow. Yeah, I have, I have a friend who actually has uh, a whole ministry or had, I don't know if he still uh, does, but in Syria, just working with the Kurdish people. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in the early 2000s, my, my sister-in-law, her best friends, college roommates, two of them were in that part of the world and they were on international news because they were held captive for like two months. Um, so, you know, we think that this, you know, we, we get caught up in, you know, iPhones and, and technology and life as we know it, but we forget that this is still happening, right? This is today for a lot of people. Um, that's right. And that's really what the Daughters of Kobani works to do is to take you into that world. What does it look like? You know, there's a moment in the story where they're fighting ISIS and they're in Kobani and one of the women commanders, her mother won't stop calling. So finally she just puts up the phone and you know, so her mother can hear the bullets and she's like, stop calling. I'll call you as soon as it's over. Right. Because their families are at stake. Right. And everybody yeah. wants to know what's going to happen. And yet they're now catapulted onto the global stage because this becomes the world's fight. Right. ISIS is planning attacks against the U.S., uh, against Europe in those years. And it's these folks who, you know, whose world we enter, who are really doing the fighting on the world's behalf. 
And that's a challenge for the also the challenge for the United States to train them, but also a risk, right? Because you just never know that that, that one of the daughters could turn on on, on and join ISIS in a way. So yeah. the U.S. military are taking their chances as well in this process of training. So I think I really hope readers will uh, enter this world and, and when they read this, we'll see how many folks from the U.S. military were part of this story. They talked to me with for hours and hours with in really unparalleled access to share with me their deep respect. In fact, there's a moment in the in the book where uh, a special operations soldier whose whole life has been at war, 13, 14, 15, 16 deployments in these post 9-11 conflicts, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, other places. And he says to me, when I watched these young women go off to war, all I could think of was the MacArthur speech, uh, duty, honor, country, because these were women who were committed to the fight and to what they were doing in there. And it wasn't that the Americans pushed them into the fight. They were the David versus Goliath in Kobani going up against ISIS. And the Americans needed them truly as much as they needed the Americans. So Eric, you're speechless, aren't you? <laughs> um, yeah, so we have this multifaceted thing, right? So Gail, you mentioned she's like in a war zone and her mom's calling her. <laughs> so you've got the whole, um, for one, you know, it sounds like a movie, right? Where it's like, hey, you know, because you're trying to be quiet. I mean, there's bullets flying everywhere. You don't want attention coming to you. And then your phone's ringing. And it's like, you know, you've got all these movies where it's like, okay, now we know where they are because their phone went off, right? So you have that. And then you have war. And, and it's, you know, as Americans, we can really connect with fighting ISIS because of September 11th and, and all that's gone on around us. So you have that aspect. But then you have you have, you know, this much bigger of just women and empowering women, right? Um, and not just a methodology or a movement, but the reality of, I mean, this is like biblical proportions of, you know, in the book of Judges where, you know, the, the one judge, I want to say Deborah, but I'm probably wrong, where she takes out the enemy by putting a stake through his skull, which is pretty, pretty, uh, you know, visual deal in the Bible. But it's like, you know, these, these women of just power where, where, you know, there's multifaceted of just, Hey, I'm a, I'm a woman and my mom's calling me and I want to respect that. But <laughs> I'm also, I'm, I'm not just fighting the enemy verbally. I've literally got a gun and I am fighting the enemy. Um, Same commander. This, you know, there's only a, David and Goliath. Well, I, and this is the thing. It's like David and Goliath, but David is a woman. Yeah. Right. Like she puts her at one point, she puts her AK-47 through the wall and she brushes up against the leg of the ISIS fighter in the oh next room. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's oh. that when you talk about that's where I think the U.S. special operations folks who are part of this story had such mad respect. And they would say they would go room by room in the kind of oh, that just we haven't seen in a number of years. Yeah. And they would do it with such commitment. And I think that was what struck me. Um, there's a moment where one of the men from, from Army Special Operations says to me, you know, Gail, I watched, you know, 20 young women in a flatbed truck, smiley face socks, fatigues, braids, AK-47s going off to fight the Islamic State. Some of them hugging each other and smiling. He said, you know, and I had this mix of feelings. And you'll see in the book, he says, you know, I had a mix of envy because I wanted to go with them, but we couldn't because of the rules of engagement. Uh, awe, respect. Um, kind of jealousy because I wanted to go. I'm a trained soldier. This is what I trained for. And I couldn't go to the yeah. front. And I think seeing that as alongside these women who were fighting, not just for, for equality, but for a community in which people had freedom to practice their faith. People yeah. had freedom to practice uh, their holidays, to speak their language, to name their children what they would wish, right? Where they could be in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-faith society. That was what was motivating them. The military piece was a means to the end. Well, and that they're that they're they're fighting for something so much bigger than them, you know, That's correct. for for their for their unborn future six or eight year old daughter that doesn't have to marry a 60 year old man. I mean, that's what's going on in that part of the world. Literally eight year old brides. And it's like. Yeah. And you see so, so many of these young women are just agents of change. Right. To your yeah. point, like they're homegrown agents of change and they have been pushing in their own families and their own societies like women here. Right. have been pushing for change and, and to rewrite the rules that govern their lives. And I think the thing that was so moving was uh, at the end, this one commander who's seen so much war. 
and so much in humanity. Yeah. Uh, and you say at the, at the end of the book, I, I asked her what, what she would say a girl to a girl born 20 years from now. Yeah. And her message is, we did this for you. Yeah. We did this so that you, oh no one could forget. And that's really what the how daughter did, of Obani is about. How this story change your life? <laughs> I mean, you know this from telling stories. I think every story, uh, every book I've written has changed me. The first book I wrote was about a teenage girl whose business supported her family under the toll month. This book just I've moved me in the sense that I've never seen women more comfortable with power anywhere in the world and less apologetic about exercising it. And that came from having put everything on the line mm -hmm. and what? Wow. Okay, so so other question. Yeah. What is what is Kabani? So it's the daughters yeah. of Kabani. So it's a little town uh, in uh, northern Syria, right on the Turkish border, that very few people outside had ever heard of before it gets catapulted onto the global stage because ISIS, I mean, it's hard to remember now, but in 2014, ISIS had not had one loss. They had been on a tear. They're producing all their slick videos. We're talking about social media, right? They're right, producing right. all these slick videos and they were terrifying the world and no one knew how they were going to stop them. And then you have this moment where this truly this David versus Goliath story forms of this ragtag Kurdish militia that is putting up a stand against ISIS and that is fighting to the death to keep them from overrunning their town. And the Americans were trying to figure out how in the world are we gonna fight to stop ISIS without putting US forces on the ground? How are we gonna do this? And they start looking and, and, and re readers will really see the Americans in real time trying to figure out, this is really our best shot, is right. pairing up with these people who are already doing that work. Absolutely. Well, and there's a wild difference between fighting for a paycheck and fighting for your life and fighting for the Favorite. life of your children and your children's children, right? I mean, this has gone on for centuries. And, um, and for these folks, right, it was really about, um, you talked about the Yazidi community. One, there are a lot of moments where women commanders would talk to me about how they would motivate one another. They were running low on bullets. They were yeah. running low on people and they were running low on food. And the one thing they had was inspiration and motivation. Yeah. And so they would get on the, the radio. One of the commanders, when I was talking about the Indian would say, remember what you're fighting for exactly right right now is this going to be a story i could see this as a movie is there a yes the, the screen rights yeah <laughs> we're looking to turn this into a, a series um but really what's so important to me is that the people who trusted me you know this right the, the people who trust you with their stories that is a responsibility you go to bed with you wake up with every single day especially because that's why i'm so happy to be here with you right so few people in the u.s know how much was sacrificed and how much valor and how much love and inspiration came in the fight that, that really was done in the world's name. Mm -hmm. So now, am, did I hear correctly that, that, uh, you know, the Clinton or Clinton foundation has something to do with the, you know, movie or book or so okay. it, not the foundation. So Secretary Clinton's, uh, Chelsea Clinton and Sam Branson, Richard Branson, the entrepreneur, his son, yeah. they have a production company um, and they will be, um, they have the rights to turn this into a series, obviously with lots of folks on the ground who will be right. very involved right. in the story it is. Although between the Clintons and the Bransons, there should be funding. So uh, I bet, I bet it'll be a great movie. I mean, the story is mean, amazing. You just, the, the thing is, it's like you fight so hard yeah. to tell a story, right? With it that it, that takes away the other, where we can all see each other. Like, what would we do in this moment, right? How would we react if this if we were up against this? And my job is to make sure as many people see it as possibly can. Absolutely. That's, but I think it's so amazing, and uh, uh, I'm just blown away. I, I think. What do you think? This, this really will help also girls and women that read this book really see that they too can have a voice. Even in sometimes in the United States, sometimes women and girls don't feel they have the voice that that's necessary to see these, how these women fight for their lives, hopefully will motivate all women all over the world that they can be a change, make a change, right? 
And the women in this story talk about that all the time. We want girls to see us. You know, we want them to know they should own their own power. They should be able to protect themselves and they should be able to advance the rights of others and take care of other people. You can do anything, right? You can do or be anything. You may choose not to, you know, I don't, you know, it's like, I don't have to, I don't have to do this. I don't have to go to war. I don't have to, but I, but I can do that, right? And and telling our telling our daughters, telling our children, um, you know, you can do anything, and that's what's so exciting, because you know them just being empowered, and it's not because someone else empowered them. Although the U.S. is is definitely, but you know, one of the lessons here is, you know, once you once you make the decision that you're going to do something, you know, others will rally around you. Um, you know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite things I, I heard was, was, uh, getting to hang out with ice tea, uh, a couple of years ago in Carnegie hall. And, and one of the things that I said is he says, he, he told a story about a friend, but he said, no one wakes up with your dream. Right. Yeah. And that was, he's like, nobody does it. You got to take action. But once you do, you know, then they'll come around you. And it's like, these women realize, look, nobody's, nobody's coming to save us. Right. And they haven't been for centuries, we've died, we've been enslaved, we've been in prison, we've been forced into doing things, and they rose up. You know, and the greatest stories, the greatest David and Goliaths are of people rising up, and to have a story of, of women being empowered because they rose up, and then, you know, the, the, the greatest country in the world, right, coming and going and acknowledging that, because you acknowledge, um, success and you acknowledge so it's just there's so many I mean every every part of our conversation today it's just like there's a million different angles well and I'm so proud right like that, that this story is going to be both in military times and Marie Claire yeah. and that it has the endorsement from both Admiral McRaven and General Votel and yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote Eat Pray Love you know, and that to me speaks to, right, just how some stories bring us together and also that these folks deserve our attention, you know, and, and it's a story that I think speaks to the universal quest for dignity mm-hmm. and the universal quest for um, a set of values that we're all committed to about, you know, how we live a life that does have justice, that does have dignity, that does have agency, and that where we can serve other people. In our military, the leaders of our military, how they were able to train, they have to be commended for that too, our military. Oh, and, and this is the thing is that they, you know, look, they don't typically talk about their work. And they were very careful with me that, you know, we're speaking with you, we're sharing the story because what they did was important and it had valor. And these are people with whom we really felt this deep kinship. You know, these were people who had fought Iraq for years, Afghanistan for years, and Syria for them was deeply personal. Yeah. So what is, you know, what would be their legacy, right? I mean, I, I, I feel like I know it, right? But from their perspective, you know, what is, what is their legacy that they're leaving behind? I guess that's kind of yeah. what, you, what you approached before, but yeah, just... Well, it's interesting. So General Votel wrote me this beautiful note that said, I had always worried that our Syrian Kurdish partners would not uh, be acknowledged. And this book really captures all that they did perfectly. And that meant the most to me because the truth is that what their legacy is, is that they stopped ISIS for the world. And they created the opening for girls born 20 years from now in the region to say, you know what? My auntie was part of that. My yeah. mother was part of that. My, you know, my, my cousin was part of creating a world in which men could not buy and sell women, in which things that ISIS stood for, the barbarity, the terror that they exported would not stand. Yeah. Just, there's not, there's, there's enough said for me. I'm just, I'm speechless in this story. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And uh, Eric, anything else to add to this unbelievable story? You know, Gail, where do we, where do we find, I, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm Neil, I'm with you. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Um, Gail, where do we find out more? 
So my website is gaillamon.com uh, and also Instagram at gaillamon, Twitter gaillamon. And then of course you can find the Daughters of Kobani, any place you buy books, yeah. uh, whether on the Penguin site, or of course uh, for folks who prefer uh, independent bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of the above. And uh, come find me anytime. I love talking to folks uh, who are reading the book. I always love it. We're going to find you on Clubhouse. Yes, exactly. I'm joining you. Ready? Ready. Uh, so exactly. We'll definitely find you on Clubhouse. That's the funny thing. Yeah, you can find me on Clubhouse too, Eric. That's the funny thing. We'll start All of us are on there now. Uh, crazy. But that's coming soon because people are probably listening to us saying, Clubhouse? What's this yeah. Clubhouse about? I felt the same thing a month ago. Now I'm glad I did. Well, Gail, we appreciate you're a great storyteller and a tremendous interview and just really provided such great information. So I appreciate you stopping by. Yeah. I appreciate you having me. Great to join you both. All right. Thanks, Gail. Thanks. Great. All right, guys, that was Living a Legacy. Take care. Hey, guys, welcome to your beautiful day. I'm Jennifer Hall, mother of gratitude, where I hope you have a beautiful day everywhere that you go. And with us, I'm excited because I get to be a little naughty. I get to show you my little naughty side today. But before, I want to introduce my co-hosts, Pearl Sharenza. Hi, Pearl. Hi. Hi, Jen. Hey, Neil. It's good to be back again. I'm so excited for this segment today. It's so fun after having Broadway to have this really cool new, new piece that we're bringing today. So take it away, Jen, and introduce our guest. Thanks, Neil, for being with us, too. I appreciate you, no you problem. so much. And Neil is our in-house PR firm. So if you need PR, Gratitude Radio has you covered. So today I get to be a little naughty. This is one of my favorite things in the whole world. And I am talking burlesque, baby. I love it from the flamethrowers to the women. I feel like a kid in a candy store. The choreography is amazing. The costumes are amazing. And I wish I had the technical skill to, to look that good, but it's not gonna happen. So today <laughs> I'm so happy to bring you a little Hollywood in the house. So today we have in the house Hollywood Jade, choreographer for Canada Drag Race. And he has a virtual viewing of his show, Urban S, Jade Rose Show on February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. And welcome yes. to the show, Jade. Thank you so much, Jen and Pearl, for having me. I am excited to talk some burlesque with you. Yes, and I'm going to moderate this because this is an interesting interview. Just go right to Jen with the first question because I'm going to learn about uh, how everything about this. So go ahead, Jen. Oh, my gosh. It just captures my imagination every, every time um, I see burlesque. So just tell us how you got started and, and how this is your jam. Perfect. Um, so I am a choreographer based in Toronto, Ontario, and I... 10 years ago, started an urban burlesque company in Toronto called Urbanesque. And um, my inspiration came from partially the movie Burlesque, uh, partially because I was working back and forth between Toronto and LA and burlesque is really big in California. And I had never actually been to a burlesque show until one of the choreographers that I was working with, her name's Ebony Nichols. She was in a burlesque show and I went to see the show and I was like, this is what I want to do in Toronto. Because um, I'd always choreographed, but my work usually was misunderstood because it needed to be seen in a fuller context, right? And so I decided I was going to produce the show and I auditioned girls and I, I taught them old pieces that I had and some new ones and and the rest is history. We're celebrating our 10 year anniversary next month in March. Well, wow, that's amazing. 10 years. I didn't realize that Hollywood. That's awesome. Congratulations. Oh, so thank you so much. So it's something, it sounds like it was something new to Toronto. I've got many friends up in Canada and everything. How was it received up there? And, and how did you get it um, really out to the masses up there to get them to be accepting of it? Yeah. So I did the very first one at this underground club called El Convento Rico and the response was insane like people were just like we've never seen anything like this we need more of this because what I really did was I fused classic burlesque with modern and urban contemporary movement and music 
So it was a fusion of the two worlds that I think really intrigued not just the audience, but also like the dancers. They, they had never explored their sensuality and their sexuality through movement before. Wow. Okay. So let's, um, so kind of looking at this, what's the difference of burlesque versus, I guess, the more of a risque stuff in a way you're looking back at the old school, cause kind of explain that to me. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the main difference with, I think burlesque and what makes it burlesque is there's usually an element of performance, right? It's, 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 it's closer to musical theater than it would be to, to stripping. Right. And where the similarity comes in is that within burlesque, there's usually a reveal element there. You start in one thing and there's usually some sort of a reveal. Some go further than others. You know, there's there's levels to how far you will go. Some go all the way to being topless with pasties and some just like will remove a glove and a hat and a scarf and end up in like a negligee. So the main difference is that the 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 element of reveal is what what keeps it um classy the old school stuff kind of like when you see in different movies like uh, blazing saddles in a way burlesque and blazing saddles and i'm yeah. just kind of giving you an example Very, of one where the, the the old school the the 1920s the roaring 20s type of thing right yeah very very vaudeville very saloon based it was it was and and if you think about what was acceptable back then, like a woman showing her thigh was like, <gasps> you know what I mean? So that same element of here comes my leg, it's all really like peekaboo versus ripping your bra off and, and, and just being all exposed. Yeah, the, the, the whole choreography of it is exciting. The buildup, the buildup. Mm -hmm. The buildup, the continued buildup. And then one of my friends has a party and, and we always have burlesque. Mostly we always have burlesque. And I love the fire. Do you guys use fire or have you? I don't have fire in my show because fire scares me. <laughs> <laughs> and as the like, choreographer oh and the God. producer, I know, I know. And it's it's a very, it's it's, I think when I think about fire and like, the the contortionist that is more classic burlesque and more vaudeville and what i lean more towards is is if you think about the movie burlesque where it still has that element of classic burlesque but the music sounds so current and it, it, it it's pumping and it's thriving whereas a lot of classic burlesque was done to like a piano you know what I mean? D D D D D D D D D. And it was it really was very one-dimensional, very one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. The classic, mm -hmm. classic, because they didn't have what we have now. So that was that was interesting. And yeah, yeah you have and to I, definitely shave before you use fire, or else you're, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I think what I really wanted to do was find a way of bridging the gap between commercial dance and theater. Yes. And, and burlesque is a good balance because commercially I can get the guys who want to come and see hot girls dance in a bra and panty. And then theatrically, I can get the theater people because they understand that there's going to be an element of performance. It's not just going to be dance steps. So, 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 so go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Make sure you get a question. I, I want to, you go, go ahead with your question. I'm, so I, I love the, I love everything you described. I think, um, you know, I, I checked out some of your work and the one for me, so I'm 57 years old. Let's just set that right there. That's and amazing. so you look so good. Thank you very much. So I went online. I was like, okay, I could never show my mom this because she would be like, oh my Lord. But yours, I think what you just described is your, I think it was called the Hori Heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was like that's such a great example of what you're describing right it was so cool to like that whole edgy part to it and everything it was really really cool I was like I actually sent it to my son who's 24 years old and it's like yeah you check this out he's like mom really <laughs> really cool but I think that just kind of like takes together what you described so let me ask you this how is your mom with all of this so one of the things that makes me the happiest about what I do is that 
not just my mom, my mom comes to all of my shows, but my mom is sort of a hippie. You know what I mean? She's sort of like, <laughs> she's cool. But like, even these girls, like I, I tend to have relatively young girls between the ages of 19 to like 28 tend to be the basis of my cast. And their parents come and see these shows. And this one girl, her dad came to me and said, I've never seen my daughter look more beautiful. And I was like, you do realize that she was in a bra and panty, <laughs> right? And he's like, yeah, but like, she's, I've just never seen her, like her internally look more beautiful. And I was like, that's how I knew that what I was doing was on the right track. Because for a, a young girl's father to come and say that, I had this other girl that just in my show, Jane Rose, that is going to, I'm airing on Valentine's Day. This girl's grandmother came and saw the show. And her grandmother was like, I don't normally leave my house, but when's the next one? You know? I mean, honestly, oh. what you're dressed, the, the way they dress, and I'm going to go right to Jen quickly, is like in Dancing with the Stars. Really, it's not as risky as you think when, when you see what ends up on Dancing with the Stars or some of these other dancing shows. So you're really and taking, I, and theater in certain ways. And I, sorry not to cut you, but I think what it is too is it's what, what I have them doing. Like, even though it's very sensual and, and it can borderline sexual, it's still tastefully done. You know what I mean? Like they're not opening their crotch to the audience. Like if they're gonna open their legs, their back is to the audience. So it's creating this, this constant like, this bated breath to see what's gonna happen next. And I think that's the, the thing that's similar to like Dancing with the Stars. Cause if you were to take those costumes and put a pole in the middle of it, it changes the whole narrative, you know? So it's, it's a taste right. level. And one of the things I love, my background is theater and acting, and I love the theatrical parts of some of the dancers having their own props and everything. What props have you gotten into for your vignettes? Um, I think I've had, I've had a girl do a pole routine, but I made sure that she was dressed, you know, so there, there has been pole stuff. I like to do things with canes and hats, um, boas. One girl did a solo and she had um, fabric fans and she was on point and she like traveled through the audience. I used mic stands. I used the environment. One girl's solo was like all along the bar and then she falls into the arms of boys. Like I really like my events and my shows to feel um, interactive and like the show can happen anywhere. You know, and when I sell tickets, there's like action zone. So if you're sitting on the aisles or in the front two rows, you could be pulled in and brought in and involved in some way or shape or form. That's incredible. I love those action zones. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. So I know you've worked with Snoop Dogg and you worked with the dream and the heroes. So who is that dream person that you want to work with that you haven't yet? Oh my Lord. Ah, the dream person that I want to work with. It's hard because a lot of the people that I really want to work with have passed away. Like I was a huge fan of Aaliyah. Like I loved her. I love Whitney Houston. Like, like the, I, I really want to work with like legends. You know what I mean? Like I really want to work with people who have done it, been there and, and, and appreciate the talent that I contribute to their show. But if I was going to pick somebody alive, my dream artist, I would really like to work with Dua Lipa, actually. I love how her music is so worldly and that she's open to trying different things. Like, like she's, she's very, I like that type of, I like her energy. So yeah, she'd probably be on my list. She would add a lot to your show too. Just with that expansion of the world, just having that in there or go all around the world in Berlin. So well. She would, and she like, she would lend so well to it. You know what I mean? I'm surprised they haven't done it yet, but sh don't, that's, that's where I come in. Neil, Neil <laughs> can you come up, please? Make that dream come true. Make that gratitude dream come true. Yes, gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so go with your gratitude moment, Jen. So my gratitude moment, I have a question that I ask every guest. And where along your journey did you have this gratitude moment that brought you to where you are now? Ooh. Um, my gratitude moment was 
when I met my, no, truth be told, it was when I was like six or seven years old. I danced in a, um, a community group and all the kids got scared and like backed out. And I was like, I'm going on stage. And I went on stage by myself and I did the routine and the reaction from the crowd is what that this is what I was supposed to do. And that has, I've carried that with me continuously through everything. That is gorgeous. That is an amazing gratitude moment. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for asking. That's what Gratitude Radio Network and Your Beautiful Day is about. Pearl, last question for Hollywood Jade. So Hollywood, what's the next thing? We've got the February 14th coming out. What's your next project that you've got working on and how can we reach you? Uh, the next project, uh, unfortunately, COVID put a wrinkle in my plans. I, I had planned to do a film an anniversary special in which I went back and looked at all the routines from the last 10 years that we've worked on and with the current cast, reimagined them and present them on March um, 17th, which is our anniversary. But now I have to pivot. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out a good way to put together an anniversary special so that we can celebrate the 10 year anniversary of Urban S. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Hollywood Jade. Um, my website is coming soon. And yeah, for bookings, you can contact my agent at Talent House. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so Jen, close it out. Go, Jen. Jen, you're on mute. I am on mute. <laughs> I want to thank you for being on the show with us today. We so appreciate you sharing with us burlesque and your journey with it. I think it's one of those things that just everyone needs to go to. And I'm excited to eventually see your show. I can't wait until the 14th of this month. So yeah. for everyone listening, we've been sharing some time with Hollywood Jade, choreographer to Canada's Drag Race and has a virtual viewing of his show, Urbanesque, Jane Rose Show on February 14th. We wanna congratulate you on your 10 year anniversary of burlesque with Urbanesque. And thank I like to you thank, so much. You're welcome, you're welcome. We love you so much. I'd like to thank Neil Haley. Yes. And thank you so much for being with me and Pearl Sharenza. It was great being on. So excited for you, Hollywood Jade. Yeah. I appreciate definitely, you guys. Thank definitely you. some ex exciting times coming in the, uh, and just the opportunities. So that's great. With We can't wait to hear about you when your website comes out and all those different things and appreciate everything. So go ahead, uh, Jen, I guess you go with your final saying, but I appreciate you coming on for sure. Thank you so much. So wherever your day goes today, remember you are blessed, you are loved, and you are sacred. We love you. Mwah. Have a beautiful day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to again highlight this director producer about Ali's comeback, Art Jones. Art, thanks for stopping by again. We have more of a conversation, the story of everyone that was part of it. You know, we were having more of a, just laying it all out, but I wanted to kind of go into specifically enough more about the film in the way of how you went about really creating, coming up with this documentary art kind of go, you went into the story last time. Now we want to know, you know, specifically how you pulled all these people together to be part of this. Actually, it, it was kind of through osmosis and it was a organic process uh, initially. Uh, that is to say, when we first started, when I first started pulling together my team, my major question was, has someone else already done a film about this topic? Because I know that there were a number of other narrative films and a few documentaries out there on the life of Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And I just thought for sure, something about this, this seminal moment in the life of the great Muhammad Ali had already been done. I, we, went, uh, we went away for about a week and we studied uh, different films that were that that were done. We looked at the, the actual movie Ali with Will Smith in it. We looked at the uh, the trials of Muhammad Ali, which which were dealt with his court case uh, while he was uh, stripped of his title and uh, and was 
five years against going uh, a ten thousand dollar fine and five years imprisonment for uh, for draft evasion. We also saw when we were kings, which focused on the the fight that he had against George Foreman in Kinshasa, exactly. uh, Zaire, uh, Africa. None of them actually dealt with this moment that relates to his return to the ring in 1970 in the city of Atlanta. And that's when we came back after a week of, 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 of viewing our different films and we had decided that now we need to put together the actual development to create the film. With that in mind, I looked at who were the people that knew Ali between 1967 and 1970. And okay. within that, we said uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, there was Bill Russell, there was Jim Brown, uh, um, they had, there was also Juan Carlos and, and, and Tommy Smith. There, there were obviously his wife, Khalila Ali at that time, and there was Barry Gordy Sr., Diana Ross, Bill Cosby, Sidney Poitier. There were a host of people who knew him between 1967 and 1970, but most importantly, they, these were people who were physically at the fight on October 26 in 1970. That's what allowed us to create our initial list of people that we wanted to reach out that, to. That's, that's really big to look at that list. That's a pretty all-star list. It was. Reaching out. It was yeah. a pretty comprehensive list. Yes. So and, going out and asking people to do it, how challenging was it? You did land a lot of them. But how that process, how did you I go think, about that? I would say I would give a tremendous amount of the credit to Manny Fassoon and Brittany Wyatt, uh, who are my producers. And they were the ones that actually uh, uh, did the research to track down these individuals to get their contact information. They were the ones who uh, initiated the initial phone calls and or emails to their agents or their managers or whomever their representative representatives were. And, and then we were able to from that be able to uh, actually have a meaningful conversation with each. And I must say of those that we contacted, I would say 90% of them were very amenable, very open to talking about their relationship with Muhammad Ali during that, that three year period. And most importantly, what it was like to be in Atlanta, Georgia on October 26, 1970, to be in the Atlanta auditorium with that huge crowd for that first fight in three and a half years against Jerry Corn. And yeah, and for people that, you know, you're a lot of people that you contacted were really good friends of Ali in certain ways, right? They really oh, had yes. that. Yeah, I don't think you said it, they said there was a lot of people against Ali going into that fight, but he had lots of people of his friends that were really for helping him. There were, there were a lot of people rooting for him. And, and it began from the moment he was stripped of his title in 1967 by the New York City Boxing Commission. And this is before he was even uh, uh, arrested and tried for draft evasion. The moment he refused to uh, step forward to, uh, to commit himself to the U.S. military, uh, the New York City Boxing Commission had stripped him of his title, and the other boxing commissions around the country had followed suit after New York. And mind you, this is before he was ever arrested or convicted of draft evasion, just wow. that he refused to stay up to step forward. I think it was in uh, Houston, Texas, our, our, our draft board office. And with that alone, he was stripped of his title. And that's the, and like you said, when that happened, then finally he fought and wins. And some people were worried that he wouldn't win, right? There was a lot of concern. I understand, Ali was twenty-five when he lost his uh, lost right. his uh, his title. He was twenty-eight when he was about to go back in the ring. This is three and a half, almost four years since he had a professional bout, and this is why. I feel I have a tremendous debt of gratitude to his wife, Khalila Ali, who made sure that he got up every morning. He put on those big, thick combat boots and he would run those five miles. So because she had faith in him throughout that entire period, saying to him, the world cannot do without you. So thinking so, about the, the, the whole training process, what is that taken talked about in the documentary as well training to be ready for the fight once they agreed to it yes that's it that's 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 a very key part of the film itself is the recognition that ali was he let me just say he never felt out of shape over those three and a half years thanks to khalila ali he was always kind of in shape 
understand he had six weeks notice to, oh my gosh. from the time he was informed in Philadelphia that he was going to go back into the ring to the time he actually came down. Uh, well, he was in Atlanta, but to the time he came back into the ring in Atlanta. So that's not a tremendous long period of time to to have a rigorous uh, training routine to prepare for, for the fight against the number one contender in 1970. Jerry Quarry was no lightweight. People no, tried no, to no. play him off as if he was. But Jerry Quarry was, as I saw many people, was like the, the white Mike Tyson of his time. He was knocking guys out in the first round. Wow. Okay, he, was, he, was, he was a force to reckon with. So even though the fight ended after only three rounds, it only ended because Ali kept jabbing at a, a cut that he opened above Jerry Quarry's left eye. And the four uh, doctors that were on hand at the end of the third round examined Quarry's eye and they thought, no, we cannot let you go back out for another round. You may lose the eye. And that would have heartened Ali as well because he was not the kind of boxer that was... Uh, uh, that that wanted to hurt anybody permanently in the ring. He just wanted to go in and fight a clean fight and prevail. How hurt was Jerry Corey of losing that fight? How long? He, how did? How much did it take him to get I over? I think it? he was. I think he was more emotionally hardened than he was physically hurt. Because if you see the fight itself, once the. Um, uh, I think his name is uh, uh, Tony Perez, who is the, who who's the ref. Uh, on the night of the fight. Once he announces that the fight is over, Jerry Quarry jumps up and he's really upset that the fight's ended because he right. had worked so hard to prepare. And he knew that win or lose, he was making history just because he was going into the ring with the great Muhammad Ali. All right, so we've talked, what about now once you gather all these people together, how did you put the creative juices of using the footage that you're allowed to use plus these interviews with these amazing people, putting it all together into one thing and really making sure that the story is told. The interesting thing about documentary versus narrative, when you do a narrative, you already have a script and it serves kind of as your foundation, your Bible, if you will, and everything else builds on top of that. When it's a documentary, it's kind of the other way around. You shoot the footage based upon a pretty clear outline in terms of where you want to go. But no matter where I would want to go, or I think I'm going with it. You cannot uh, predict what the person who you're talking to might say, and they may take you into another direction uh, beyond your script that may be uh, uh, as enlightening or as engaging as what you were going after in the first place. So you have to have, you have to be kind of loose in terms of the parameters that that you have. That said, once all of the footage was shot with Jim Brown and Evander Holyfield and uh, Ambassador Andrew Young and Senator Leroy Johnson, Mayor Sam Marcel, et cetera, we took it all back into the studio and we looked back at what we had. And from that, we were able to best uh, Use, you utilize what we had in, in juxtaposition with the, with the actual script that we put together. And we then, I then wrote the script on the back end, which is what you okay. hear, hear presented through our narrator, Ken, Ken Nelson. And then just going through that process to look through, and I think documentaries are so interesting because you're looking in the, the eyes of what Ali went through and hearing Muhammad's ex-wife to hear the other people and what their thought process was leading up to Atlanta, which again is so monumental with the, when the film came out. Once people saw it in the theaters, what was the feedback you were getting from a lot of people that were part of it, that were part of the documentary? Those who were actively engaged in the documentary, as well as, and I have to say, it was pretty much across the board uh, with those who thought of themselves as Ali enthusiasts, people who followed Ali for a good part of his professional career. Uh, and these were people who really thought that they knew everything that there was to know about Ali. After seeing the film, I, I would say that we had uh, Juan Carlos uh, had called me because he didn't actually go see it in the theater, but he, because he was sick uh, during that time when we had the Atlanta premiere. 
but he was extremely enthusiastic and very pleased with what he saw. In addition to which, there was Robert Castle, who right. uh, who put up the letter of credit for six thousand six hundred thousand dollars to pay for the fight, as well as Senator Leroy Johnson, who were very hesitant at first to even co commit to an interview because they had done so with other filmmakers and they weren't pleased with the end result in terms of mm. how they were represented. But I'm happy to say. Both Senator Leroy Johnson as well as Robbie Castle were extremely pleased that we stayed to the story of what actually happened. And I think that's key. You stayed to the story to what actually happened and really stuck to the script, stuck to specifically the story and putting it all together in, in so many ways. Do you feel what would you add to the story if you could, if you had the oh. opportunity to go back? And add uh, actually, extra things. It's, it's interesting you should say that because I was just uh, approached a couple of days ago by a, a, a sales agent who wants to take our film and ex ex expand it into a, uh, a docu-series. And wow. within, within the context of that, there are a tremendous amount of very salacious footage that, that was left on the cutting room floor that we was not able to put into the actual a feature-length documentary of Ali's comeback, The Untold Story. And so we're, we're talking about uh, expanding the, the component that addresses how much pressure that was placed on Ali to not go back into the ring through the, uh, through the segment where Jimmy the Greek from New York goes to Las Vegas right. and coordinates a fight with the governor of Las Vegas, of Las Vegas between Ali and Jerry Quarry, and I'm not, not Jerry Quarry, but Joe Frazier at that time. And as they're just about to sign off on this, the phone rings and the, the governor picks up the phone. He hands it over to Jimmy the Greek. Jimmy the Greek is on the phone. Wow. The, 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 the color flushes from his face and he gets off and he says, I gotta go, we can't do the fight. That was Howard Hughes that he was talking oh to. Oh my gosh. And I would like to actually expand that part of our film to really address who was Howard Hughes and other people of exactly. Howard Hughes caliber that had very strong, very, very, these were powerful people who had very strong feelings about Ali not ever going back into the ring because they saw him as a draft dodger. They saw him as being unpatriotic and they saw him as someone who was, who, who, who stood against the American creed. Exactly. So what about, what, what's the next documentary for you? The next documentary for me actually is one that uh, in some ways is an extension of what we, what, what we've already done. I'm in, uh, that is uh, Khalil Ali contacted me about, Oh, six, seven months ago. I am, she had Lloyd Price, the, the, the pop singer from the 1960s, wow. on the phone. And we had a three-way conversation where she had uh, laid out the concept for doing a book into Ali's comeback. And that book in would, would be the Rumble in the Jungle. And there's a tremendous amount of engaging information that almost nobody knows. Because when most people think about that fight, people tend to think that that fight was engineered by... Um, I, uh, the gentleman with the wow fro, uh, what's his name? Oh, 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 oh my gosh, it'll come to me in a second. Yeah, Don I, King. Don King. Okay, Don King is the face of that fight, but actually Lloyd Price was the one who set wheels in motion by going to uh, Kinshasa and speaking with the president of the Congo at least six months before. Right. So, so that's that, great. So you have to keep us uh, updated on that. We're going to keep uh, throughout, especially February. Uh, the opportunity through Black History Month to kind of highlight more of uh, this film and especially a perfect month like this to highlight the film. But where can people pick up the film right now? Oh, right now, if people uh, went to Amazon Prime, you type in Ali's comeback, The Untold Story. It's available there. Like if you would like to uh, 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 rent it or stream it, that's that's one uh, uh, option. The other is to be able to um, acquire the, the actual DVD of the film. It's available on Walmart as well as on iTunes. There is a, there, and if you go to Ali's comeback, www.aliscomebackllc.com, you'll see the entire listing of other uh, locations online and in stores where the, either the, you can stream it or you can.